0: Hello everybody and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is Jay David Osborne and that is Chris Saksenism Chris. I know we have episode 0. So technically we've already hit 150 episodes, but this one numerically is episode 150. So congrats for sticking Same it out with you. me.
1: <laughs> it's amazing David. Well, it's, what a journey, you know. I I and and thank you to our listeners. It's uh you know, it started off as a, well, not really a humble proposition because I don't think that we have those, honestly. No, we I don't. I think you and I are are a little bit more, uh, I think we were talking about world domination right from the start, but <laughs> in a playful way, but it, it has been an achievement. And it's something that uh, I really, really look forward to. And as I, I, uh, get older and facing this uh, this project of getting on the road to Seattle with this whole art exhibit, the solo show Ghostscapes, which opens at the Center on, Community, on Contemporary Art in Pioneer Square, uh, May 11th to June ten. Tell everybody you know in Seattle, please, listeners. Uh, the reception is the night of May 11th. But the install is the moment I arrive three or four days uh, to get everything installed. And it's complex because that's all the sort of like a jigsaw puzzle. But it strikes me
2: that the things that get done are the things that really...
1: To say you enjoy them is it sounds kind of trivial. I, I mean sort of deeper enjoyment. I mean something that energizes... And and gives back, and I've always felt that our segments do that. I look forward to them every week. Um, I've I've missed more of your company off mic because you've been doing more of the suburban dad and just a lot of stuff, and and I've been very busy too. We used to have not just our recording sessions and maybe a little bit of planning, but but never really because it's pretty off the cuff. But uh, a few sort of rants during the week. And, and that is where, uh, you know, the show came from Uh, originally we were just sort of calling each other late at night and kind of commiserating about the strangeness. Uh, (laughs) So yeah, 150 episodes does seem like a real achievement. And I, I don't think that we've uh, come anywhere close to citing some final horizon point. It's just the opposite from my point of view. I I see a a tremendous uh, well ripples and ripples and ripples of possibility emerging. I mean we're not even going to get close to for a while to a subject that we've mooted in which was on a lot of people's minds of artificial intelligence I've got some amazing uh, insight from some people behind that, but just not ready for for that. That's that along with other things is upcoming. So congratulations to you too. I've 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 been very grateful for you steering this and uh, making the time in you know a very conflicted uh, schedule at a very difficult time. We've watched and listened to uh, Gus growing up. Some listeners may recall the absolute epic fart uh, that (laughs) he left us with at one point. It was a, a kind of sound (laughs) effect. That's very hard to, uh, you know, just to replicate, you know? Um, So I'm sure
0: sure he'll appreciate that when he's 13. Yeah. Back for him. (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, from my perspective, uh, these 151, technically, episodes have been a total honor. And if you could have told, you know, 23, 24-year-old David, I think I bought Private Midnight on May 5th of 2009, according to my Amazon history. Wow. If you, could have, if you could have told that, David, that he would have been able to, you know, get together with one of his heroes every week and shoot the shit and be taken seriously by that particular hero and engaged with um i think that david would have found that hard to believe so i uh i'm i don't even really have words for how grateful i am to you uh for your inspiration your intellectual inspiration um i've just i've looked up to you for so long and consider you such a close friend and i uh, choking up a little bit but i'm grateful for the time we have spent David. together I, I,
1: that gratitude is comes back to you and it's been a real honor for to you know for me and a deep pleasure you know yeah that to, too yeah to see as you mentioned last episode you know the the importance of practicing thinking together mm-hmm. uh, i've i've been uplifted by your energy and i've i think that that i am not alone in enjoying your responses to the imaginative challenges, (laughs) Uh, your facility has just developed this magical fluency that, um, you know, really is, uh, there's been a journey and it's very exciting to have been part of that.
0: Awesome. Well, all that out the way, all the mushy stuff out the way. Yeah. Uh, we've got some stuff to talk about. So first of all, I'm curious if you have a band for us today.
1: Yeah, I do. And this sounds a little bit uh, a little bit ominous, but I think it was time to introduce them. They're called Unknown Caller which I think is a kind of sinister little thing that occasionally pops up on one's phone. But they are really telephone hacktivists masquerading as musicians. And their deal is tormenting and eavesdropping and tapping into the lives of celebrities and finding private conversations that they then incorporate into their music. You know, those really awkward, embarrassing moments. There was a time, you may not remember, this. it's one of the few stories about the royals before, you know, Meghan and Harry that I remember, where Prince Charles was listened into by somebody doing exactly this kind of thing, uh, saying to Camilla, you know, that he wanted to be her tampon which I think was just so kind of pathetic and and sort of, I mean, this is what Prince Charles was thinking was kind of (laughs) hot, raunchy talk. And it really just sounds kind of juvenile or disgusting or both. But they're actually really quite effective in who they listen into and whose careers they go after. And I particularly enjoy their album title. You know who you were.
2: Ooh, I like that. Yeah,
1: thank you. Because their little moments, they never openly acknowledge or name who they've listened into. You have to recognize the voice. But it might just happened to do you think hey that's leonardo dicaprio talking to a 12 year old girl you know and uh it just you know so you're it allows listeners to piece these sordid little back room puzzles together on their own Mm -hmm. but the choice of their targets is always distinctive enough so we we know who they are and they know who they were
0: that's cool that's cool and do you have an aphorism for
1: a i do i thought i was really i'd go uh well to the uh push lawn mower level get right back down to the street right down to fundamentals nothing too highbrow or intellectual or metaphysical this time i'm just
2: going to go with the hardest work in the world, is procrastination. That is so true. That is so true. I recently finished up all of the
0: editing work that I had for the month, and I very specifically scheduled this time out to devote to creative projects, things that don't necessarily have to Immediately bring in money, but that I can work on. And, you know, because of that, my schedule normally consists of hanging out with Gus during the day, but also fitting,
2: excuse me, a little bit of editing work wherever I can. And today, when Gus was napping, I felt a feeling of dread because I didn't have anything pressing monetarily
0: to do. And I started to think, oh gosh, like, what should I do? What should I do?
2: And unfortunately, I procrastinated today. I had things that I could do and I didn't do
0: them. And it sucked. It hurt. It hurt. Like it's a physical pain when you do that
1: you know oh look it's a it's a major psychological problem and i've been thinking about it a lot and i've i've been thinking about it in that kind of peripheral way you know the old saying you know sometimes the most important things happen out of the corner of your eye and i think that's the way it is with some of these deep ingrained habits but i realized that Although we talk about procrastination and nod our heads and think we're talking about the same thing, and indeed we are, there's no question in an overall sense, each of us procrastinates in different ways. We engage with a deep inner semantics that is unique to us. And I've developing as part of my memory and alertness book, a little diagnostic test for people to help them sort through and maybe get a little bit more of a handle on their own special profiles of procrastination. How that insidious force intersects with their particular brain chemistry and mind aura. Because it takes its own special form. it's really very, very insidious that way it, it it just it crafts itself into into us in very personalized ways. So yeah it it's a it's a real bitch of a thing and it makes you it almost pro, procrastination as a word makes me think of procrustian. Do you know what a procrustian bed is, you know?
0: The bed of procrustes the Nasim Taleb book uh what does it mean
1: bed of nails yeah
0: oh really yeah
1: but you were all you were doing really well i mean that was fantastic yeah Uh, and that gives me a, a chance just to slip in very briefly david has traded in his uh aging skateboard uh new age cult cargo cult prophet god longer hair for a, quite a stylized short haired look that is uh, it's just amazing. I'm not sure. <laughs> it's, it's well done, well, but it's taken me by surprise.
0: I had to get a haircut because I woke up one morning and uh, I asked my wife just kind of point blank, like, do you like my long hair? And she said, yeah, it's fine. And then I said, would you have sex with me more if I had short hair? She said yes, so I went and got a haircut. I walked out the door and got a haircut. <laughs> wow, wow! That's... And then they proceeded to have sex. So, success. There you. I'm a very. Go. I'm a well, listen. I'm a that... base animal man. Like I'm a. I'm. I'm. If 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 I know that sex is at the end of the tunnel, I'll walk. It doesn't matter how dark and scary it is. I'll walk down that tunnel.
1: Yeah, no, I, and and nothing that anyone else says about the haircut matters.
0: No, No.
1: (laughs) nothing. No, well, I, well, that's, yeah, it looks, I think it looks fine, but I understand the pragmatic drive behind it. And
0: I'm very pleased that's,
1: that was successful. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank
0: you. I want to read your text message.
1: I do have an imaginative challenge for you, though, too. So you want to do what oh,
0: you want to do first? Oh, good point. We should probably do the imaginative uh, challenge first. Okay. Well,
1: I'm still recovering from your last week's uh, response because I thought that was one of the most beautiful improvisational things I've ever heard in my life. Uh, it, it was a remarkable uh, take on the prompt that I put forward. But for listeners who missed it, I think it was – a gorgeously poetic and extremely on the money allegory about what makes a good marriage. And uh, I encourage David to get that transcribed. I think that is a standalone piece, just all its own. But any, I don't know, for a definition of intimacy that transcends, you know, humping and bumping to a larger uh, commitment, I just thought that was beautiful. Um Thank but this time is a little is apparently a little bit lighter hearted, but I think it touches on uh, a big issue that we've looked at in the show from many different points of view it deals with the larger topic of mimetics, in other words, contagious ideas thought contagion, the manipulation of mass culture uh through psychological means uh. I mean, there are many examples of it to some extent. Big phenomena like the, the management of COVID might be might fall into that. The whole world of conspiracy theories—anything that a conspiracy theory arises around—is is in this zone. Um, but memetics was a very interesting subject. It rolled out from Richard Dawkins' uh, coining of the term meme as the intellectual. Uh, analog to the physical genes, put forward that idea in The Blind Watchmaker. It never really got off the ground as an academic discipline, although it's still talked about a lot, but it's certainly a hot issue in terms of social media, what goes viral, what catches on, what doesn't. Uh, So I thought I'd put you in the, the position of being a creative director type of person at a large memetics agency, you can think of it as a giant multimedia conglomerate or as a clandestine secret power behind the scenes of things, however you want to envisage that. But money is not really an object for you here. It's much more the tactical decisions you make and the means that you call upon and your strategic overview of how to achieve the objective that we're looking to hear for. But don't be worried about money. If you've got a good idea, you'll be able to execute that idea. I wanted to look at something very simple, because also with memes, we were talking about stereotypes, tropes, cliches, all of those fit under that the larger rubric of, of what memetics looks at and whether we call them stereotypes or cliches is kind of a, a more a tonal point of view issue. Mentally, conceptually, they're the same. I want you to think of the
2: idea of, you fill in this sentence for me. Cops like eating. ass. No. Cops like eating.
0: Oh, cops? Yes. Donuts. I thought you yeah. said top, I thought you said tops, like uh-huh. in a top box. Uh- Sorry.
1: <laughs> that was fantastic. That was fantastic. Yes. Okay. Cops like eating donuts. Yes, they do. Supposedly. I don't think no, I don't know if how much truth there is to that. But your challenge is to repurpose that formula, to rejig it, to completely transform it. Cops no longer like donuts. They're not associated with donuts. You are destroying that conceptual association and replacing it at least across American consciousness, which is where I think it holds sway the most. People would understand that expression in in Australia. They they, They call them cops, too. Uh, less so the Brits, but, but in America, you are creating a new meme that associates with cops. Donuts, okay. nope. you're, and you're, you're going to give us a little bit of an insight, maybe not all your secrets, about how your giant agency with all its subtle mm. magics and wherewithals is going to arrange this, what's your mechanism, the mechanisms of change, as well as what you're proposing as the change. So you good
2: with that?
0: I am good with that. And I appreciate it too, because it is a, um, I feel like this imaginative challenge actually gives me some space to think a bit deeper about one specific thing. So I really like this one.
1: Good. Good. I thought it would be a good break from I try to give you some variations, you know, always. And uh this is different than what, you know, last week's and the week before. Those kind of were related. This is a whole new game.
0: Mm-hmm, absolutely. So your text notes for tonight. Insidious fascination. The Strange Sudden Grammars of Photography, 1839, Daguerreotype, Metal Print, William Henry Fox Talbot, Positive Slash Negative Paper-Based Process, Reproducible. Compare Evolution of ACDC Electricity, Etienne de Silhouette, Late 18th Century, optical illusions of Daguerre, dioramas of Paris and London, stage magic, evenings at the microscope, freak show slash peep show, family portraits as status signals, the printed image reinvented, second Gutenberg revolution, 2D reality becomes the new reality, for the first time, technology is not just a means of seeing, but the first level of what is seen to be seen. Cartoons and silent films versus still image and a peculiar, a peculiar ceremonial reconfiguring of cultural time. The split there between a means of seeing but the first level of what is seen to be seen we have to get to that because i'm so cute that's the first thing that jumps out to me is is what i'm really curious about but having given that preamble where would you like to start with these notes
1: okay uh well one one quick lead in that uh, that ties into this theme but also uh, links back to our architectural theme. I was, I came across a quotation from Raymond Lowy, the amazing industrial designer, and certainly one of the major creative figures behind modernism. And it's a great quote. He said, Never leave well enough alone. And I love that. Uh, but it occurred to me that one way of one of many possible uh, avenues into the Lost Explorer show and the investigations that David and I have been up to since episode zero is, well, Raymond Loewy stands as a good emblem of it because it occurs to me if you, that that name is L-O-E-W-Y, his list of, of credentials and achievements is just remarkable, as many people might know. He worked in every possible medium. He was the designer's designer. But it occurred to me that if you removed him from history mysteriously, if he vanished and just was never in existence, the 20th century would look so vastly different than what it it does. And even people who haven't heard of him in any way and maybe not have heard of some of the brands that he worked for. He started off as a graphic designer, but he was definitely working with materials and buildings even, uh, and trains. Uh, His influence was so powerful. And I think we have reached the, the edge of the pond where an individual can have that kind of immense rippling effect where there's a kind of geometric progression of influence. And I, I wonder if if that isn't what uh, postmodernism as a term was trying to say to us, but I think that we are past that. I, I don't actually think that's what postmodernism, I think it was more optimistic, but I think we have reached the end of a possible rippling effect through popular culture, mass communications and... I think that in reaching that point, uh, we are socially at the edge of a kind of singularity, whether or not the technology is fully there in terms of AI, robotics and nanotechnology and supercomputing. I think socially, we're, we're at a point of singularity. And it is worth hearkening back to where I think that really got rolling. And We've been talking from the very beginning about what what defines the modern sensibility, Modern with a capital M, that huge division. where Where was that line? And I'm going to argue as a starting point, that it, there's been so much attention to uh, machines, uh, the in the age of industry, you know. The Industrial Revolution, and perhaps you could look at the at certain weaving machines or the steam engine, train in the transportation field. Those are all seen as emblems of modernity. You know, there's a great D.H. Lawrence moment of you know the young, virile, passionate man of uh, Midlands England, who's the you know the hero of the story and is in love with this woman and, and thinks there's a difference between men and women and uh, is this powerful, as no, as noble a savage as Britain, you know, in the 19th century could muster. And what is he contrasted with? Well, the iron horse of, you know, a train, you know, inhuman. We, so we get those contrasts machines replacing the labor of men but not offering any more humanity, always dehumanizing people first. But I think all of that is is, is secondary. I really do. I think humans are communications oriented creatures. And I think it was a communications revolution that changed the nature of history. And created the modern sensibility that laid the groundwork, and I think it's it's photography. I think that in 1839 we had a strange convergence. You notice we we've, we've said also at different points in the show that when there are convergences, uh, Edison and and Tesla on electricity, alternate current versus direct current, we've uh, we could look a little bit in a different register entirely of Darwin and Wallace, I mean, if Wallace hadn't sent innocently being the warm-hearted, wonderful uh, Terence McKenna, Walt Whitman figure that Wallace was, as opposed to the hemorrhoidal, embittered, uh, (laughs) anti-Christian digestive problem, Darwin, uh, Darwin wouldn't have, have felt any need to publish. He would have just stayed grumpy. You know, Mm -hmm. and he looked at Wallace's beautiful, uh, clear writing that sort of has like, you know, and what Darwin was when he was younger, uh, but he'd lost entirely. Darwin thought, well, the only thing I can throw in here is I really got to stick it to God. That's going to be my point of difference. Right, but so when we have these convergences, they 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 say something important. We've looked at schismatics at at big schisms as key points, so that's a fault line breaking away. Well, there's also fault lines coming together, convergences in that sense. So in 1839, we had Daguerre come up with a amazingly insightful yet completely occult practice involving hot metal Mm -hmm. and things that can really go wrong, sharp edges and burnt fingers. I mean, the whole magic of that is absolutely crystal radio bizarre and is so physically based and yet is so wizard hat, magical counterintuitive. It's hard for me to consider. And there's a whole bunch of other weird people out there with, Experimenting with some very primitive, uh, like the arrowhead equivalent of vision, light, and the capturing of image. I mean, just that expression, the capturing of an image, you know, snapshot, almost all of the the early, our photographic terms are hunting based, which mm-hmm. is something of a clue. But meanwhile, we've got a guy, William Henry Fox Talbot. Come on, you and I together couldn't have come up with that name. That's magic. He comes up with the core photographic reproducible process that is paper and negative based. I mean, talk about two roads diverging in the gigantic wilderness of, of cultural mind. Those, and yet there's something Remarkably similar about them, but completely different philosophical and tangible, mechanical, logistical differences in those techniques. But suddenly it's on, you know, and I would call this the second Gutenberg revolution. And things started happening so quickly, so quickly with the adoption of this technology. And it's like it pours out of a foundry cauldron into streams and it not that many streams, but different ones. And it runs hotter and faster. The more the cauldron empties, if that's possible. So that's what I thought I would kick off with. And, That's a claim that I'm sure is not uh, original to me, but I honestly haven't been able to find it where it is pointedly asserted by someone that modernity begins with the capturing of so-called real visual images, because this is the difference. I mean, you look at the great, you know, Dutch painters Vermeer and Van Eyck. I mean, how much more photorealistic can you get I mean, they were right. geniuses, and they. I'm not in any way suggesting that uh, the oil paints, the materials, the canvas, that those aren't examples of technical, technological innovation, because they absolutely are. Uh, it same has always been true. Bosch couldn't have done what he did without the technology behind him. The frescoes. Uh, Uh, you know, of, say, Giotto, you know, that wasn't possible without, you know, some innovations in cement. All of those material science is very real. But with photography, something happens that is decisively different. That's my point. So that's my starting point, to, to see what you think about that and then to pull on which of the threads or to follow which of these streams interests you the most.
0: When it comes to photography, Being this huge schism, do you find it more interesting from a technological standpoint or from an artistic standpoint?
1: I think that's a a good way, a good question, because the problem is exactly separating those two. Right. I think that that prior to photography, there was a much clearer way to discuss and understand. Not that it sometimes it wasn't complicated because I think sure. it, it, it always is, and I think it philosophically, inherently, aesthetically is, but I think something very mysterious happened. Uh, and we are still feeling the aftershocks of it. And for all of us, I think now, uh, over the age of Gus, um, I think it's impossible to really fully mm-hmm. grasp how our minds have been reconfigured sure you know yeah
0: yeah i want to hear more about that that's what's most compelling to me um because i'm often drawn towards the occult and the alchemical and i i have a feeling a hunch that you're correct about this but do you have any guesses as to what that thing is what that shift means is it You know, you could go to, um, I'm not sure if this is uh, true or not, but you often hear Native peoples not wanting to be photographed because it takes their souls. Yes. Do you think that they're correct? Do you think that there's something to that? Uh, Big question, but... Well, it is.
1: I think that's a great starting point question. And what's interesting about that is... uh, And this, you phrased it very respectfully, and I think very accurately, it sometimes gets, you know, laughed at or lampooned in certain ways. Uh, and going back to, say, our episodes on cargo cults, which, you know, I I studied in, in more detail and lived with those people. So, of course, I had a deeper level of understanding about it and saw some, you know, some subtle, well, not not really all that subtle even, that Western journalists you know, would miss entirely. So I think this notion of how Indigenous people uh, respond to to photographs is a very interesting starting point, because they can follow exactly what you've just said in very different ways. And that's been my experience in the two times I've come up against that very directly. And I would say uh, it applies in a There's further evidence of that in terms of what Australian Indigenous people officially say about it, too. Mm -hmm. So we've got what sounds like the same quality of of assigning to photographs a magical occult, perhaps sacred, perhaps uh, disturbingly profane, but in a supernatural sort of way. That's the animist magic point of view, if you like. But I know that to be very complex and different in different parts of the world. So although some of the things may sound the same, there's different there's different anxieties, if you want to put it that way. That's a sure. simple way to put it. Yeah. But there's also something that is, I think, very interesting and and rarely talked about. And uh, some of the remote peoples in Central Africa. And in uh, Southeastern Africa, which is mostly in the nation state of South Africa that they've been able, there are people who have had a very different uh, response. And it reminds me of, this is a strange association, but I'm, I'm following all my mental associations now because mm-hmm. that's part of the discipline of understanding your own mind a bit more. Uh, it makes me think of in uh, The Lord of the Rings, the character of Tom Bombadil when he puts mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the ring, the ancient man of the woods, right? And I think it's one of the subtlest bits of Tolkien's writing because the ring has no influence on him. And later, you know, when the the council of all the wise good guys in Middle Earth are uh, saying, well, we should give the ring to him because he, you know, has power over it. And Gandalf says, "No, I wouldn't put it that way. I would say the ring has no power over him." And so, the two African groups that I know, and I think this is more, this has been true of, of other people, and this goes back a ways, but they were not physically able, perceptually able.
2: To recognize the photographs as As we would, they did simply not accept the
1: two-dimensional hypnotic proposition, wow, and this is my real th- sort of underlying theme for this is that what I think is mysterious about this new technologically occult form of communications which is also a form of record keeping etc cetera, etc but we can call it as part of the communications framework what's remarkable is that it seemed to be self explaining at least me mm. in America
2: mm-hmm. it
1: very quickly established a grammar of how to interpret it. You look back, anybody can see this. Uh, You know, it's, it's very clear in the history of print, you know, just how damn eccentric uh, things were. Look at you know Lewis and Clark's, you know their crazy spellings. Look at all of, I mean, the whole history of English literature in at the university level used to be explaining how complicated syntax and spelling and all the conventions of of typesetting really were. Right. Not even writing, but all, but but both writing and typesetting, I suppose you could say, it was some completely crazy. It took a lot of time. For people to get any clear idea of, of it took an educational process. And even and I work in that process today, and I got to tell you, it's it's not working well enough. We still struggle. You know, I say what you know, students give me there are three to four fundamental types of sentences in English. Take a simple sentence. What diagram that for you? Tell me how that works what that looks like what's what's made it
2: no they don't
1: know but somehow with photography and i'm not saying it was instantaneous i'm certainly not saying it was instantly pervasive uh it, it of course it took a while to percolate through but not like the automobile you know this was something else that happened and i think that it it to me, in a David Lynchian sort of mythos sort of way, it's an analog to August 1945. You know, it really is. It, it's it's a huge explosion, and we are still feeling the aftershocks now. And we don't even know that they're the aftershocks. The the effect on our interior grammars, yeah, right? Our semantics of perception before interpretation have been so fundamentally rewired, blown up, cannibalized, reconfigured, who knows?
2: Yeah.
0: That, the idea that it is a self-explaining medium is so huge because what you have is a before and after, but in a kind of weird reverse nuclear bomb. Not in its impact, but in its, you know, and what you've just said that I will be thinking about all week now is that, you know, I can take a picture of Gus on my phone and show it to him and he immediately understands what that
2: thing is, but that's weird. (laughs) That is
1: exactly my, that is exactly right. I think it is so bizarre, absolutely bizarre for the, the tonal quality of authority that we assign to that image, the complete acceptance of it, how deeply connected we're, we're impatterned with that and in resonance with it to the point where we're not in resonance, you know, really uh, with it. it. It's, It's changed our oscillating frequency. Remember, you know, said, you know, one system, the oscillations of one system can so affect the another system that it's oscillating on the same frequency. And that's what's happened.
0: When you brought up that there are some tribes that just out of hand do not accept the validity of the image that blew my mind too because you would think as human beings okay if we all see this two-dimensional image of ourselves or of a scene that we were all a part of and it is a very good probably pretty close to 100% accurate representation of what happened that we would accept that that was a moment caught in time through various technologies whether that's a phone or a actual camera but the fact that there are some people who just say no makes it very interesting. It's a wrinkle in the whole process. And you think, wait a minute, why do we accept that?
1: Yeah, it's a, real. a wrinkle that we can almost peek through. You know, yeah, yeah. Is, it, it's very—it's uh, hard to find that wrinkle consistently. It seems to move in time and space, yeah. not like a curtain we can just you know, always, you know, fly. but it's there calling to us. Is it? It is a clue to to other other perspectives, and mm-hmm. you know, we one of our early early points on the show and a real lost explorer principle is before these last of what we're calling indigenous people everyone is of course indigenous to somewhere but we're using that term for practicality sake the last of these people are, are are disappearing under you know the increasing pressure of so-called civilization and we just got to learn what we can from them while they're while they're around it all, because that really is a clue. It it says so much emblematically about the larger notions of what we are considering to be and, and giving ourselves so much credit for in terms of culture and civilization. Because think about it for I mean the moment and this is what happened to the people who collected this this data, they realized whoa. So
2: you give someone some money one of the you know let's say a tribal elder some money because
1: you know i i don't want that i want that shiny thing cuz i can you know that you've got i'll take that oh and those you know binoculars you know I, I you know they they would make very strategic choices
0: For food was, or booze or whatever yeah but
1: it was the the problem of and it is one of the great problems of modernity. It's, it's what I call the ball bearing problem. You know, you've got, and we've talked about this, you've got, you know, two ball bearings in your hand, beautifully made industrial, simple things that can do many different things and be parts of many other machines. They look exactly the same. The goal of the process that created them was that they be the same. And yet, if you take one from your hand, you've got now one above. both, you have to say they're different, you know, and this is the ancient, like the ancient Greeks would have gone, see, we were telling you this all along, it all starts with these simple questions, you know, and you'll spend thousands of years and you won't get any farther than we had. And that's exactly right. The, the, the modern age, with its the capacity for mass production and mass reproduction, accelerated that symbolic fluency and addiction in humans to an unbelievable level. And just at the point as the, as the addiction need high of that fluency reaches the point, photography comes along and it's like fentanyl. Now fentanyl would might be another analog because it's, it's yeah. like we're ready. We're ready for real, real a ador- drop. Just getting into it. We're ready to have our heads completely destroyed you know so the that's, invention
0: of photography was the invention of AI
1: that's, basically That's where I see us sort of heading you know pretty in the near future. Mm-hmm. I think we needed to, to look back at what laid the groundwork and I think it lays the groundwork in totally reconfiguring our sense of mind, brain, all of those, major binaries that define Western culture, which we're all party to, even if people have never heard of them, you know, there's no getting around that, you know, everybody's in it, you know, from the homeless person to, uh, you know, the beer belly guy to the lady at the beauty parlor. There's nobody who's free of these because we come, unless they're not speaking any language and not consuming any media, you know, I love it. You know, when you just look at little... simple, Because this evolves so quickly into the absolutely inconceivably strange world of television, which is... We've talked a little bit, you know, of course, about TV in the past, but I have a way for us to think about it that is... We can't get to it this time, but it's just... It's simply like taking off your head and just... You have to put it somewhere else for a moment because you'll never... Uh, watch a screen the same way. Think about how many things you really watch in life. It's a very strange, strange word, strange verb. You watch something on TV, you watch TV, you watch your weight. Maybe you watch the, your languages and the words that you speak. But we do very little watching as a species anymore. Now that we've got something to really look at, you know, I mean, think of that, man, that is just fucking wild.
0: That is, that is super, uh, man. I'm going to be thinking about that. I want you to tell me more about uh, for the first time, technology is not just a means of seeing, but the first level of what is seen to be seen. And while I'm doing that, I have to go, Plug my headphones in because they just okay. died, but I, I can. I'm still. I'm still here. Okay, I'll
1: I'll get started on this. Okay, so just a brief brief recap on where photography is this fork in the road between these two processes, the daguerreotype and then Talbot's uh, paper based negative approach, and. At this moment in time, photography is seen as, in a kind of fine art sense, an alternative to the the painted portrait and landscape. And we see, it's not surprising, that uh, still life, but particularly portraits uh, and daguerreotypes uh, of of his famous American figures, uh, presidents, Native American chiefs, we, we see who gets the portraits and obviously the still life idea uh, because it's simply too difficult to move the equipment around. So there's a lot of, of inbuilt uh, structuring and, and limitation there. But the other side is the whole world of stage magic, thaumaturgy, which miracle making, which we talked about in our episode on on theme parks, but it's, It's a fabulous, rich history going back to the ancient Greeks, to the ancient Chinese. Uh, There was a lot of ingenuity uh, invested in lighting effects, moving statues, fireworks, strange optical illusions, tricks, gags. And so there is this sense of of photography bringing some of the more stately uh, techniques and sensibilities of painting, but on the other side, bringing pure carnival, you know, bringing some really radical, strange stuff. And that's what the, the, the first photographs, when they start, when it starts to percolate into those houses that, Families that had a degree of of education, maybe, but maybe not. But certainly some intelligence and curiosity. These were the descendants of people who, you know, a century or two before were spending evenings at the microscope, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And there were families that played the piano and played music together. That was a very common thing. The novels were long because people would read them aloud. You know, there was a different level of what was, and I think that we grossly misrepresent that whole uh phase of the nineteenth century and the, the, the end of the eighteenth, but certainly the the thick of, of the nineteenth century, because I don't think we could really understand the family dynamics of those times. I think it's just socially outside our world. So we don't know what we lost, you know, in the emergence of um. Photography and its uh descendant or
0: very, very particularly what do you think was lost from the transition from you know novel reading and and that kind of thing what do you think photography did there um i'm interested in this from the perspective of a dad what okay well lost
1: i i really recommend that uh There's a great Taschen book. We love that publisher Taschen on the history of photography, and it can really just quickly bring you up to speed on where that started as a public, and you know, middle class uh, accessible art form, scientific line of inquiry. Fantastic crystal radio things, because there's a lot of fun stuff that you could do that can get a little bit technical, a little bit in with your hands. And I think that you and Gus would really dig. But there was a powerful sense of participation. And, you know, there was ghost spirit Mm -hmm. photography and trick photography. And there was a real uh, enjoyment of the theatrical. And I'm using the word theatrical rather than just artistic, because I think it does come out of the the world of stage magic and thaumaturgy. Uh, and just creating w- wonders for from a performance sort of standpoint. That was going on. That was going on. And I think that what has happened and what happened very, very quickly, and none of the – I haven't read any criticism or theory or even uh, cultural history that shows much foresight about what, what would happen. And, and, and uh, I think that's weird. I think that's very strange. I, but somehow very, very quickly, the hypnosis of the two dimensions becoming not just the third physical dimension, but also that very, what well, it's the dimension of concept and interpretation and symbol and, and how you interpret what's going on. Why, why do you watch uh, a film? And it's just say you get two two, seconds, two or three seconds, and there's a woman and there's a shadow, and the shadow's holding a knife, and you may or the sound may or may not be on. But mm-hmm. you're instantly hooked for a little bit of a moment. I mean, you know mm-hmm. all sorts, of, think of all the things that you know about that scene how do you know them how do you know that's just a setup that she's not really you know how think about it i bet you could write just make a list an inventory of a hundred things that assumptions that you're making about those milliseconds of watching that well where did that software get loaded where did that come i mean really it's it goes on and on a and on. question,
0: dude. Yeah, because one of the things I was going to ask you, but I think you you at, you answered it pretty well, which was the difference between, say you have a painting of a bucolic landscape, sheep, farm, what have you, and then you have a picture of the same thing. fundamentally, what is the difference? I think you address that with what you just said, which is that
2: for whatever reason, with the photograph, There's a sense of of an operating system
0: at work that creates associations that may not arise when you look at a painting of the exact same landscape. If you look at that landscape, you're looking at it through an interpretive, artistic, physical uh, uh, filter that the artist has put onto that thing. But the photograph, paradoxically, through its objective capturing of that scene, in fact, sets off all kinds of subjectivity, like subject, subjective uh, uh, notions. Do you see where I'm going with that? Oh, Does yes,
2: that- yes, I do. And I, I think I can, uh, I
1: think there's a visual diagram, diagrammatic way to that would be very helpful. If you take a point as the viewer, draw a line to say that landscape, down to a painting of that landscape you get a weird triangular yeah relationship right whereas very very early in the piece the photograph going back to I mean if, if you've ever really seen a daguerreotype you know and held it in your hand like as Mm-hmm. It's so remarkably stylized. It's like German expression, a set design in a movie. You think, well, you know, like in the cabinet of Dr. Uh, Caligari. I mean, it's so over the top. You think, oh, <laughs> but that was instantly accepted as realism. Think about the notion of realism. We don't even shake our heads at that word anymore but what an odd idea it is
0: can i can i interject really quickly with so as a you know 21st century update to what you're talking about rios and i were watching a show called the last of us which is a zombie story about a mushroom that takes over people's brains and makes them eat each other and there's a scene where two characters are walking through A post-apocalyptic landscape, and some giraffes have broken out of a zoo. And the scene features the characters, kind of, uh, you know, it's it's a beautiful scene. You know, there's this um, kind of crumbling skyline behind them, and they're, you know, a giraffe is eating some oats or whatever out of their hands. And I turned to Rios and I said, "That is the worst CGI I have ever seen in my life." Those giraffes look like shit.
2: Those were real giraffes. I was waiting for it, yeah. Those were actual giraffes
0: in that scene. I thought they were CGI.
1: I think you've raised a really, really important point. And we're, that's going to resonate for for a few episodes because this is... We're, we're not leaving this topic alone very quickly because it is so rich and so deep and it's happening on so many different levels of, of perception in that raw mechanistic visual sense, you know, precognition, pre interpret. as if, you know, but that happens so fast. I mean, you wonder if that's really worth even talking about, you know, uh, but it is there is so much going on so quickly with this. But it, what's odd is that, you know, the famous, you know, little yeah, Jean Magritte, uh, this is not a pipe uh, painting, you know, a little sort of ironic comment from uh, a kind of, an, I, I like his, his paintings. sort of a nice surrealist, but nothing, a little bit too much. Uh, a little bit too concept, I think. A little bit. Oh, that's a bit too much, isn't it? Bit more. Bit sort of. He's a gag, a gagster, really. But the, the, you know, this is not a pipe. Is a really great, simple concept for students to understand representation. You know, and the subject-object problem, and to what extent is. Is the image itself, or is that an image of something? That's the prepositional distance that I'm obsessed with now. For
0: the I mem- am too. You've gotten me obsessed with it because I think in many cases, especially in the mundane day-to-day iPhone photo, it completely bypasses that prepositional distance. And it just is. Yes. The experience of it is if I send you a picture of Gus, you know, eating spaghetti. You're not thinking about it in terms of a representation. You think, oh, that's cute. That's Gus eating spaghetti. Completely bypasses it. This is why this is so interesting to me. Exactly. You're seeing it. Freaking creepy, man. (laughs) Now that I'm thinking, it's freaking me out a little bit.
1: Here's something optimistic about thinking about it, though, because the prepositional distance, if if it's understood to be not at all simply in spatial terms, but very much in spatial and temporal terms. It's it's four-dimensional that way. It mm-hmm. really is. Mm-hmm. When you get a hold of that, it's possible to, as the Solomon Islanders say, to turn your head, you know, farther around, and you may catch a glimpse of your vertiger. Yeah. There is a hauntedness within humanity and it starts within our own psyches because we cannot avoid, we fight with this prepositional distance, but we fight with that sense of how we even talk about ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know? And this identity crisis with people worried about their pronouns. Well, man, I'd be fucking worried about my pronouns too if I was, you know. I, I think
0: you've been that- growing up, seeing yourself reflected back at yourself with no prepositional distance whatsoever. And that representation is actually not a representation. It's actually you and you intuitively accept that you would begin to go deep before you dismembered your body. You would begin to go deep and think about like, well, then what does that, what does that mean for me? What does that mean? Who, like, who am I? And a lot of people, yo, is there something to people pulling apart their own bodies that has to do with photography?
1: All of these things are deeply related because it's, it it really is the essence of not, it's a prepositional distance, but it's also the distance between the, the metaphor and origin, metaphor, yes. and concrete yes. context, you know, this is, this is the strength. We
0: break down the metaphor know. barrier. I like that.
1: Yeah. And, and, and it, the, the whole notion of metaphor gets more metaphorical and mysterious because we forget entirely what's going on. We get so involved in it that we've lost any sense of the original strangeness of it. Now we're we're barreling past that, you know, and certainly that was what happened so fast with photography. So fast. It spreads into these different sort of levels. But here's the thing which I, and I I think this is where uh, the emergent field of corporate history, where the sociology of innovation and the timeline of market dynamics is being understood as being more important uh, and, and is worth a kind of new anthropology approach. Yeah. Because how things get rolled out, you know, with um, the whole Kodak phenomenon. And George Eastman was a very mysterious, interesting figure. Uh, he, you know, made a decision to commit suicide at the end. And he said, well, my work is done. Why wait? You know, uh, a very odd dude. He he personally invented the word kodak why because it didn't mean anything that's corporate thinking far ahead of its time i mean come on you could there are people making seven hundred thousand to 1.5 million right now with that brief in hand and they are not up to that level as georgia wow.
0: yeah it didn't mean anything and I mean, you get paid the big bucks to literally create nonsense. Yeah. But so
1: how the cameras became. And I, I don't know to what extent uh, my uh, my corporate history is not good on on the computer uh, on Silicon Valley, I think because those people kind of make me ill. But um, yeah. I should know more. I think that's one of the the areas where this is getting a lot of attention. Uh I don't know if any one of, of them, uh, Steve, you know, jobs or whoever, Bill Gates, how much they knew about and paid attention to uh the growth of the home family brownie camera, you know. But that would have been, I, I think that is in business schools, it should be a, a great source of of information, of, of cultural penetration, how that was done, what, you know, the pricing structures, there's a lot to, to learn yeah. in that. uh I know a little bit more about uh, the introduction of television sets and how that worked. But yeah. those things are very much part of, I wish more people who, uh, you know, have a brain and and really are interested in some form of cultural studies would go into that field you know i think it, there there would be some a lot of things to discover right you
0: know? right what i think is so interesting about what you're saying is that if photography is a breakdown of the metaphorical barrier between the objective and subjective if you want to put it that way but i'll put that aside for right now the breaking down of the metaphorical barrier implicitly states that the metaphor is a crucial alive thing for human existence. And I would say that something like film, when you begin to put those images into 40 space with time moving and you have the ability to cut and jump and all these kind of things, it kind of reintroduces that metaphorical barrier. But I wonder if that breakdown that you've articulated in terms of photography, is not now being replicated by AI. And if that's why AI feels so weird, because there does seem to, what I've noticed about the AI revolution so far is how massive its implications are and how casual everybody is about it. That it's just a thing. The way that you were talking about how some of us respond to photography as, oh, that's a picture of me. But some tribal people might look at that picture and say, that's not, that's not real. That's not me at all. That's, I've refused to recognize that. It seems to me that on a mass scale, uh, and photography almost certainly greased the wheels for this to happen. The introduction of AI has been met by an alarming amount
2: of people with that same, uh, irreverence for that metaphorical barrier.
1: Well, there's some really interesting things there. But I I think that for, because there's so much going on with this topic, I think we need to help listeners with just a little inventory of some of the issues going on here. So you've got a photograph and we won't specify the, the vintage of it. It could be back in the 1840s. It could be, photograph today, it doesn't matter for the purposes of this discussion. You could show that to this um, fantasy indigenous person that we've got this emblematic
2: outside civilization technology uh, perspective. And
1: they're in the category of, of just not understanding the image at all. Now it's possible that they don't understand the visual Aspect of it, decoding it as line, form, and color, for instance, they just visually can't process that. It, it's like dogs watching TV. You know, it just is complete. You know, they might sense some movement, but if if there's nothing have the dog is not. And you know, it's the mirror test to some extent, mm-hmm. which is another very very dubious uh, anthropology psychology idea about testing sentience. Then there's the level of what is. Represented, in, represented. Is this a picture of of David? What does that mean? And does that put it in the same category as a a portrait of you or a mm-hmm. caricature of you? Would all of those different artistic media and different products be still seen as something of David? And mm-hmm. that's one line of thinking. But the weird thing that happened. And this is, you know, the, the distinction between the map versus the terrain. For many people, very quickly, the photograph was David. It becomes almost transparent. Instead of that triangular diagram we had with a painting of you, we've mm-hmm. now got a picture of you that seems to be like an open like a window. Mm-hmm. And the the distance between it and you, is very becomes mysterious very very quickly in cultural history. Now if you ask someone, well no, that's not that's not David really he's over there. This is a, a picture of him and people go, oh, yeah, 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 I know that. but in terms of the psychological reaction and response, they actually have to be engaged with that. To really recognize it again. It Mm. slips by. It slips by us all. We're all vulnerable to this. Because we're processing so much data. I mean, do you remember? Well, it, it certainly has been going on your whole life. But suddenly there were all these people talking about the amount of visual information you're exposed to is 100 times what people in the past were. Wait a minute, think about that for a moment. How can that possibly be? You're... It's not
0: the amount, it's the variety.
1: Well, but how are we, de- how are we determining the difference there? We're, we're, we're allowing some discrete framing and therefore cumulative power to certain kinds of visual images. But presumably we're seeing and getting as much visual total inf- information if our eyes are open. It's a very weird thing how suddenly people go, well, that's a lot more visual, you know? It's like, what? Is it, I, a, is I, it
0: a measure of this of the amount of semantic depth of the visual information that you're getting? For example- well, That is, I
1: think, it, the, the term that we, we uh, it, it's very helpful to use, semantic depth, depth of field in a conceptual way, right. and how then that works, because it's obviously- Uh, And this is a fun exercise that that can be undertaken with some good students because it's something that happens to all of us all the time. So although it's hard to articulate, we can pull out some key moments and some key analogies and use the metaphor process in a in a positive and proactive way to try Mm -hmm. to understand how that works, because I would suggest that uh the the history of of development of that semantic depth interpretation is really what's gone on
2: in the last uh 100 years the last century that's really what what is is the
1: core of it, it because if you looked at that open mindedly about the implications of what it's led to so many other changes it's rippling through us second to second because it really is the it is the dominant paradigm for how we function uh, at least on the social level to what extent that is the private secret interior psychological level mm-hmm. i was just it's huge there too and and really difficult to get uh any kind of perspective let alone control of but We have to, we absolutely have to do this because when we do move forward into uh, the AI discussion and I like, I mean, what what we're putting forward is I think a reasonable argument that the the groundwork for artificial intelligence actually um, takes form, takes shape with the emergence of photography. I think that's an interesting claim that that I haven't really heard of. I think it steps away from other uh, forms of technology. It obviously is very uh, much uh, emblematic of technical innovation, but that's an interesting way to set the stage for the AI discussion. But I think that um, another thing to talk about in relationship. Uh, some sort of oscillation with photography and visual uh, recording is audio recording as well, because I don't think that we can possibly understand what's happening to us right now unless we develop some imaginative capacity to step into the mindsets outside photography and audio recordings and all that they represent, because I I think that God, if in any way we're saying that you know language is a virus, as William Burroughs has said, or you know as language is some sort of invasive colonialist uh, entity, well, I think that the 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 visual and the stopping of time, you know, the, I mean, cause and effect looks so different when you could just do the coffee cup going back onto, you know, from, from the, the shattered fragments on the floor. When, when you first ran that back, do you know that all around the world, the first time, and I had a friend who did this and as a father of a young boy, you'll just enjoy this. It's, Children, when the first time they are played a tape of backward voices, they just, they've with laughter and they, they get what's going on. And somehow this, this is, I think, the deep power of photography. I, I think it holds true of, of, of audio recording too, but we'll wait till another episode for that. But I think this moment of suddenly an image has more reality than what it depicts.
2: Mm.
1: And think of the verb depict. That in itself is so odd. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, because pick... In a pictogram, it already makes everything seem symbolic. It's not something of itself. It's a letter, a sign, an example of code that stands for something else. So we get into semiotics and prepositional distance and the ghostly hauntedness so intensely, while we're holding a photograph, saying, Well, that this isn't a photograph, it's the bucolic landscape, or it's David, it's the subject, because somehow that's what our conceptual framework suggests. It's reached a level of realism that creates the possibility of never
2: understanding what real might mean ever again have you dropped out are you there no i'm here yeah so <laughs> i dropped out for just a
0: second i was trying to get it back to it and then i had a weird glitch that didn't let it work um I think that's a perfect place to wrap up the main body of this. I was uh, super into this. So with the cop, I was thinking about the cop and that the cops like eating donuts. Let me take you through my thought process here. So the cop eating the donut, the donut is mass produced. It's sugary. It leads to the cop being overweight and unappealing. Uh, but the donut is also missing its center. It's a circle with no center. a kind of a soulless treat, if you will. So my,, uh, in my opinion, very uh unsatisfying response to this would be to have the 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 cop instead like the hot dog. And the reason why the cop is eating the hot dog, from the department of memetic studies is that the hot dog still places the cop in a milieu of uh, sort of blue collar working class people. He's just like us, you know, people who are just like us, like to eat sweets. They like to eat donuts, but they also like hot dogs. But the, the hot dog itself is, it brings to mind images of getting that at a baseball game. It's a, uh, it's very casual. It's uh, not fussy. Without also being something so completely artificial as the as the glazed donut with the hole uh, through the center, and you know, if you think of the bun with the hot dog in the middle, there's some sexual overtones, but there's also a center that is being filled. So that would be my initial pitch at the mimetic board meeting. <laughs> <laughs> okay. again, maybe not my most satisfying answer. I was really into this particular conversation. I'm not going to make excuses for myself, but I think the hot dog is a good replacement uh, in terms of mimesis.
1: Okay. Look, you know, I think this is, um, this is why the variety in the imaginative challenges are so important because we get to see David taking all sorts of different dancerly athlete shapes and forms. I like the fact that your sort of initial instinct is that that was kind of a quiet response relative to some of your pyrotechnics. And that could be true. But I want to suggest here that this is the mark of a truly subtle mind, as Sherlock Holmes would say, because I think there are some uh, flashy thinking people in the advertising entertainment field, who would really try to dream up the big concept and have something that was real uh, color and light and splash and mook. But I think if you had like the really shrewd naval intelligence, psyops type of perspective, which I'd like to think I represent, um, I think that was a very very shrewd response for starters you're not trying to invent something entirely new you know it's mm-hmm. not like some new kind of food treat that you have to launch and create a profile for itself and then connect to cops and there's nothing exactly exotic and there are hot dogs are available and they're you can carry them in your hand and eat them they do have the blue collar thing of course the sex uh, suggestion maybe is always good it ties in with just, it's just very very simple to make that fit and that's why i think it's such a great response to this because all the cleverness and you know color and motion in the world doesn't make for effective communication. And that was the challenge here. Something that's going to get out and pervade society very quickly and replace something that was pretty ingrained and automatic, you know, fill in the blank level. Mm-hmm. Need. So I think that was an exceptional response. Uh, and it really, it speaks to a deep, Principle of psyops. I mean, I'm looking at my special forces uh, tactical training manual right now, and it would, it will, it says this at multiple points, and it is the underlying principle. And if all of that isn't good enough, Robert Anton Wilson and L. Ron Hubbard were certainly behind on this idea, and I don't know how. What better qualifications for manipulating people you can get than L. Ron Hubbard? Small changes. Right. Do not attack right. giant belief systems that will just a- anger the water buffalo. No, no, no. A yeah. blossom for the bull. A blossom for the bull, as the old saying goes.
0: I appreciate that. And I, I, I read an article this week about uh, delis in New York City that have been. Producing pre filled donuts. So, a donut, the interior of which is injected with cream cheese, because there are very specific taxes in New York about how a particular item is taxed based on it being sliced. So, they invented this way to inject cream cheese into it. And so, I was thinking, oh, what if it was a pre filled donut? There could be a metaphor there but then i thought no the average person if your goal was to actually change the way your average guy or girl on the street saw cops if you took that simpsons image you know the cop from the simpsons yeah i got a donut it's one of my favorite characters, chief, Ch- wiggum chief wiggum yeah. if you if you gave him a hot dog instead it would be different it would be different
1: You'd have I, I think view. on so many levels. That's why I I really love that response. It it didn't it need to to be flashy. It needed to be deeply insightful, and I think it is, and it's workable. And I can see it being the kind of thing that just that change in the picture, so to speak, would change everything. One little thing, you know, mm-hmm. and it suddenly would start rippling out into. Her other sort of uh, perceptual implications. But it made me uh, think of a a joke I hadn't thought of in a long time, so I have to share it. Uh, I'm sure people have heard of this, but uh, a new kid starts working uh, at this greasy spoon diner and is kind of getting introduced around. And there's this huge, just disgusting cook who's sweaty and hairy and blubbery and foul and he's making hamburgers by smushing the raw meat between his arm his body and smashing it into a patty and the new kid is looking at this and is just getting nauseated because there's just no way the cook has had a shower in years And he's looking really sick. And then the guy who's showing him around, who's one of the who's the fry cook, says, if you think that's bad, you should see the way he makes the donuts.
2: (laughs) There you go. go. I should have seen that
0: coming, but I didn't.
2: That's hilarious.
0: Sir, do you have a tool and a tip for us? I do.
1: I do. Look, I, I'm going to roll out a tool because the tools are always more depth of field, a little more complexity, tips more practical. I'm going to roll out
2: a tool that I think is a new hallucinogenic nutrient that is immensely
1: powerful if people actually follow through on it like it's it's an exercise technique and like any form of exercise it's easy to say but if you do it if you do it with any kind of devotion you will have amazing results i guarantee it i guarantee it Conceptually, it is a kind of diary. Okay, and I recommend actually having a physical notebook diary. But you don't have to do it for even a long time. If you gave it a couple of weeks, I think you would see the results I'm talking about. The difference is with this diary is it moves forward in time so i want you to think of a week forward so tonight for instance you would you have to really put in do a really good diary entry they don't have to be the same length every time but the more specific you get the more specific you get the more amazing the results you will find. What I'm asking you to do is project yourself forward a week in time and you are writing the record of that day just as you could do it for today. Mundane mundane details, very, very important. Get specific. And you can only read that entry in the week to come. So you work on a day-to-day basis, but one week out. If you do two weeks of that, I think you will see something remarkable. And you will end up uh, spending some serious time wondering how to put that really into, not just words, but into action in your life. Because it is something powerful is happening. And I'm only just now working out uh, where I think
2: that's going but it is amazing. Yeah, that's <clears throat> I think that might be your best tool yet. I'm definitely doing it. I mean that is that is a very practical expansion of
0: what sigil magic even is. Yeah. I mean that's I
2: really see that. Yeah. 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 I mean that. it's
0: it's sigil. It's also um you know, it's manifesting. A lot of people talk about manifesting. They get mood boards together and you know, put a picture of a Ferrari or a Lamborghini and mm-hmm. you know, a couple on a beach and all that works. It's largely made fun of because no well, because people are afraid of their ability to manifest their own futures but it does work but i think that getting really specific with it is the key
2: that is because
0: you wouldn't write you know two weeks from now i'm i'm in a bed with two women and my wife is totally cool with it and she's
2: filming it you know no realistically what do you do you brush your teeth do you what do you eat for breakfast what do you do
0: when you go outside with your son what are the things like w- going into the evening i think it would be fun for me if i started today because i would be predicting what you and i were going to talk about next week yeah. right i'd be like and then chris is going to bring this this is what i'm thinking he's going to do um
1: that's that's fantastic cuz you need a few anchor points you know some things that, in, but the the specific nature of it and yeah. the, the kind of confidence, you know, right. it's there. What you end up doing is giving shape to one of the most mysterious ideas there can possibly be: the future. You know, it. it, it what does that actually mean? Not
0: culturally, but to us, you know, what is right. that? And. And to live in the future without anxiety and fear, yeah, right? It's not, I'm not afraid of the future. I'm just transcribing the future. Depression is living in the past. Anxiety is quote unquote living in the future. I don't think that's correct. I think that this technique is effective at eliminating both of those things. Because if you are specifically documenting the future, you fundamentally can't live in the past because your past is your present at that point. And you also can't be afraid of it because you are dispelling the the spooky myth of what the future could hold with mundanity. So it's perfect. It That's, fits well in both That's well said. That's
1: well said. I'm glad you did. I, I consider it a kind of Vardager. Discipline. And we use the term it's vartiger is a Scandinavian term, Norwegian, for a kind of doppelganger, but it it relates to a, a ghost of the future. It's a premonitory spirit. And to me, it's the way of making peace with our inherent doubleness. Yeah. You know, the stranger inside, well, two strangers come together, that's an army. If you unite with your vartiger as opposed to conflicting with your duality or double or doppelganger, you've got a multiplicity of strengths and flexibilities and capabilities, you know. Think of it, someone's got your back. I mean, think, that's where that comes, you know. It really is about managing and making a new piece with that mysterious other inside.
2: Brilliant. So What's you your tip?
1: That. Okay. This is very uh, simple in, in, in statement, but it ties into something that, that you've been talking about. Uh, and we were certainly talking about before we started recording, but we, we mentioned it a lot in terms of, of physicality of using, not just the hands of our mind, but our, You know, full nervous system reflex arcs of hands, skill, the physicality of things. It's still possible for people to listen to a vinyl record. Now I know some people are really into that, still, some younger people, you know, it's come back, it's where it's never disappeared, but there are students of mine who have never handled a physical LP, you know, they've they've Mm -hmm. seen them at maybe garage sales or secondhand stores, but they don't have that whole, the tactile experience of taking the record out and, you know, how the people used to, like the the real record aficionados, how they did that, you know, the whole thing, but the mechanics of the turntable, what a beautiful idea, turntable, and the needle, I mean, Honestly, it, it's a, like when you see the gramophone idea, you you know, uh, Thomas Edison, yet again, you think, okay, I get where they're coming from. But would you really have had that idea? I have to say that, that I just don't think it doesn't I seem that. like
0: it should work. It doesn't no. seem like it should
2: work.
1: <laughs> it, it seems it seems like it's flintstone you know, like the, the yeah. pterodactyl with the beak going down on the rock. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it just, it seems counterintuitive, but it's magical and occult the same way as photography was. And actually photography does make a lot more sense because they're, they're you know, light and shadow. But how yeah. the record, ne-
0: I mean, the needle part is the thing yeah. that, you it's like and how the sound gets onto the grooves of the dude it's fucking insane it <laughs> isn't it isn't ins- and what's really insane
1: is that culturally we've just completely forgotten all about that and mm-hmm. yet it is still around and we can get in touch with it but i think that the physical notion of the record is so vital to the listening Mm -hmm. experience i know many people and not just young people who now they're so used to not just the commodification of sound as music but they really don't think that anything is made you know it's you just press a button the beats aren't there's no rhythm that, you know, like in, in a Ghana village, you know, there's mm-hmm. no, 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 no. That, that's all, you know, this is just machines and it kind of blurs into a vapor. But break that pattern back with something fun like putting on a record. And I think I might collect old suitcase record players because I just love the,
2: the beauty of them you know I do really... you do you know where the sound comes from on a vhs tape no not really in
1: any physical sort of way that i'm really comfortable to uh i should but i really don't know that actually not in a neither
0: way do that do i you know neither do i but you've we got me thinking about that. this You've got me thinking about this. We know where the visuals come from. It's tape. It's tape that's spooled through the, and projected up into the television. But where does the sound come from?
1: I think that's a phenomenal
0: (laughs) Isn't that crazy?
1: I mean, it's it's (laughs) the same principle as the cassette tape, but how you get both on that.
0: Yeah, how do you, and how is it synced up? It's perfectly synced up when you watch a film
2: on VHS. Yeah. Well, see, this is uh,
1: I, I think you could go back to the, the camera for the moment. Let's let's emblematic it in that way, and say that's the beginning point of these forms of ultimately family household entertainment technology products that simply overwhelm all of us. You know, and, and they become so much a part of the semantics of consciousness that we don't even really see them, you know? And all of these things instantly go to that Arthur C. Clarke level of magic, you know, of of Mm -hmm. technology defined as magic uh, for really the reason of just lack of of familiarity and curiosity enough to find out.
0: Absolutely. You pose a good challenge. What's going on in your dream life?
1: Okay, well, I started off uh it we're in this in between spring period, so I can't I don't want to have the air conditioning on, I don't need that, but it's sort of uncertain time. So I fell asleep, and I think I was a bit sort of warm and not quite in the, the deep groove. And what I had was an actual just extremely pragmatic, uh writerly uh Breakdown of something I've been thinking about for my memory and alertness book and addresses the prepositional distance and George Lakoff's uh, and Mark Johnson's notion of the deep power of metaphor, particularly about containers. You know, they've got a lot to do about, you know, all of the inside, like in time. You know, and how we're contained by all of these things. And you would think that the, that if metaphor had the magical properties that we often ascribe to it, that it would be, about more about freedom. And yet, containers keep coming up, and almost invariably, there's a negativity to them. You ask the younger the people you talk to, Gen Z, almost anything that has to do with structure, authority, uh, hierarchy, containment is seen in the negative. And yet that is so what they're desperate for and craving for real conflict of our time. And I thought to myself, you know, the problem with this is, is that containers are entirely taken for granted. If you have to make, you know, a bilum, a bag or a clay pot or something, you start to really value that because it's <laughs> very handy to have containers It's just that we've got Mm -hmm. so many of them and we feel entrapped by them, but we're completely remote from the concrete experience of making a container that could be useful for many things, you know? I mean, when we have water, well, yeah, we just throw it away and it gets recycled, we hope, you know? So my first part of the dream was the problem with metaphors is that they become increasingly metaphorical amputated from origin divided from concrete context. And that really brought that sort of, you know, to a point of clarity. So I got up and I sat on my porch and watched the UFOs and listened to the, a little breeze in the pine. And then I went back to sleep and I was really ready then. And across, you know, it was just, absolutely gorgeous from a visual art point of view imagine like a 60 or 70 foot ceiling and it's just projected are these holograms that appear so real of these just voluptuous female nudes real real photographs images holograms of women but also abstracts just this constantly flowing river sea of all of the forms of imagery and depiction of the naked female form, shape, spirit, just, and and then really gradually, like, like a kind of musical shift, all of these body shapes become both real, real, And imaginary musical instrument shapes. And Mm it's just Mm the subtle progression, and it's just the multiple layers of them. And I I am so overwhelmed. I've got no notion of what context. Am I at some sort of museum or art show or, you know, no, 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 no context except the thing itself, this river flow. And then. Almost as if it's, I've been prepared by the steady flow, you know, these voluptuous naked female forms, and then these remarkable musical instruments. Some of the, the brass and, you know, valve instruments, immensely complicated, but organic too. And some of the weird African stringed instruments looking like they're still alive, like they're more animal than, you know, an instrument and all of every, everything kind of looking a little bit like weapons too, you know, the connection between the bow and the bow, you know, but everything starts to flow into creatures like, and there's this like amazing fossil record that float like these giant horseshoe crabs and armored, you know, fish, you know, hideous things from like the Amazon, but like 2 million years ago and on and on and on. And all of this just goes through. And coming out of that, I was a little bit aware of the contrast between my earlier dream, very practical based on my writing and something I was I was working on thinking of before hitting the hay. And then this just waterfall river avalanche of imagery mingling and mutating. And I,
2: I almost heard a voice that said, "It's like a veil, isn't it?" And it it really is. That's
1: the distinction between the worlds. That's the metaphor that works for me, I think. And it's it's an ancient one. It, it, you find that in many many cultures. But it's it's one of the key links, say, between the Indian. sort of point of view, and some, you know, Western and Asian points of view, the veil between the worlds, not the wall, you know, it's a little bit more uh, diaphanous and translucent and mysterious, but it's, and it's soft, you know, it's a fabric rather than, you know, that says something, Uh, but it's a little bit like smoke, and it's a little bit like a mirage, which is Ties us back, I think, to the camera image, you know, the box of mirage. And that's a that's a weird idea. But I think that the, the sense of the veil being
2: this metaphor that is sort of a global human one for the membrane between the worlds
1: i I think that's my strongest forerunner right now of what the metaphor is that it is a veil. I felt that in the dream, and I felt my other my part of self go, Yeah, yeah, it's
2: stick with that, you know, don't complicate that. that's complicated enough.